Artistic Whispers Productions presents Antithesis Book One Predestination and Other Games of Chance A podcast novel written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer Author contact information at www.jdsawyer.net Featuring the vocal talents of Link Scrow Michael Lamangelo Philippa Ballantyne Kitty McKeon Nathan Lowell With original music by Danny Shade This story contains harsh language, sexual situations, and graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. And now... Episode 19! Hello, this is P.C. Herring, author of Cybrosis, a podcast novel debuting later this year. If you're in the mood for a cyberpunk action adventure loaded with conspiracy, love, betrayal, and revenge, please visit www.cybrosisnovel.com. But you're not here to listen to me. You're here to listen to Antithesis Book 1, and this is the story so far. Senator Shelley's ploy to intimidate the lunar government has succeeded. The Board of Governors has voted to invite military occupation by the North American Union. Douglas Reeves, High Court Judge and Secret Leader of the Revolutionary Network is on his own. In a last, desperate move to find a way to preserve lunar freedom, he has chartered Cassie Orenthal's ship to Nineveh. Cassie Orenthal's lieutenant, Zylar, is left in charge of Cassie's lunar operations. Cassie hasn't been able to prove her suspicions that he's tied to the security problems. If he is false, he may decide to make a move for power, and if he does, Brittany Hydra will be caught in the middle. Meanwhile, on Nineveh, Joss Kyle has decided that with the universe unraveling around him, a little insurance policy might be in order. Chapter 4. Predestination and Other Games of Chance She was worth the price of a meal. Hell, she was worth the price of a few dozen meals and every dirty little secret he'd had to sell to get her. Now that she was here, he'd be able to sleep again. Three weeks was quite enough. Twenty-one long nights spent sitting up in his easy chair, gun in hand, sleeping lightly enough that a butterfly's fart would wake him. Money couldn't buy happiness, well, not for people who thought that the best of life consisted of acquiring the latest toys. But it could buy peace of mind. She was what he needed to sleep well at night. The peace of mind that could accommodate a three-man crew comfortably and six in a pinch. Slim, stealthy, fast, and well-built, she was exactly what he'd been waiting for. Fugitive. Even her name was perfect. Joss chuckled to himself, gloating over her. She stood across the docking bay. Black against the blue-gray and red-orange patchwork of the walls, like a queen deigning to give an audience. She looked like quite the number, but it was nothing compared to what she was when you got under her skin. She was awash in creature comforts, individual sanitary units for each of the two pilots' quarters, and enough in the way of games and reading for a man to walk off the ship better than he went on. Her skin wasn't much to look at, but that was mostly because it was designed for light to slide off as if she were not quite there. Joss walked around her, admiring her from all angles, 
It was the first time he'd been able to look at her all in one piece since he bought her. The crews had had her tented and disassembled constantly since he placed his order. She was 50 meters long, 15 high, and 70 across the wings. Her scramjets could pull her in and out of the atmosphere like a heron strapped to a rocket, and her mass driver would push her at a steady half-G as long as it had reaction mass to jettison. Fugitive. He'd paid extra money to have that name emblazoned on her outer hull down either side. It was gauche and overdone, but he'd been hiding too long, and the irony of it was irresistible. Even when he was sleeping easy, he didn't like the notion of not having a good escape route. It was bad enough living on a station where he could buy security. There was always the risk that someone with deeper pockets could come in above him. Solid blackmail only went so far as insurance, and the gerbils in the security office had been dragging their feet on investigating the bombing. He needed an escape route, and she was it. She was magnificent, and she was his. All her hidden secrets, offensive and defensive, were his insurance. She cost him every dime he could squeeze. All he had left was his operating capital and bounties, though it wouldn't be long before he built his reserves back up. His rational mind told him he had no reason to need the insurance. Maybe Cassie couldn't be trusted, but one isolated bomb that exploded when he wasn't in the room couldn't be her work. She knew how to get to him, and if she sold him out, he wouldn't be living to talk about it. There hadn't been anything since. Whatever hound was nearby wasn't hunting him. A rabbit knows when the fox is on the field. He catches a scent or hears a rustling. Even when he can't tell where the vixen is, he knows she's there. It was the difference between being prey and being lunch. Joss had spent too much time on the business end of that equation not to smell the scent on the breeze. Fugitive's crenellated skin gave her the air of a mechanized mamba, and her countermeasures made her every inch as stealthy. When the time came, if it came, she was his ticket out. Joss walked onto the bridge, his bridge, for the first time. Compact and, he noticed, similar to Kyrie's control room. Good. Very good. Cassie would feel right at home. As much as he preferred her at a comfortable distance, when he looked around at the multiplicity of controls, he couldn't help but hope Curie had made good time on its trip. For all his bookwork, his piloting skills weren't top-notch, and Fugitive should be flown by a serious pilot on her maiden trip, even if it would just be a quick spin around the block. Cassie would be the perfect... assuming he could trust her, which was assuming a lot. She wasn't as good a poker face as she thought, and there was something she was keeping from him last time they talked. Something big. Joss punched through the pre-flight checklist, looking through the control screens, scanning the HUDs as they flicked to life, and idly wishing that he hadn't fallen in love with the past as much as he had. There had to be another leak. Someone who knew the poker tournament was a cover. Maybe another contractor had tracked him down. Perhaps there was a leak lower down in her organization or in his own. Just because he couldn't ferret out the mole didn't mean there wasn't one underfoot. As each subsystem powered up in sequence, the rising hum of the circuits warming up echoed satisfactorily in the bridge. Even the acoustics were good. Joss pulled up a quick pre-flight checklist and ran the first item, a full self-diagnostic of all systems. Thanksgiving would be gone soon back home. 
The deeps of winter would sift across Massachusetts, and Christmas, for the few who still celebrated it, would infect the air with rebellion and subversion. Somewhere in Plymouth, a pair of children, the oldest now in her early teens, would spend the last dregs of another year not wondering where he'd gone. He didn't seriously think about going back. They wouldn't recognize him. Hell, he didn't even have the same name, and his face had gone under the knife twice, once with a surgeon and once in a dark alley in Bogota. He was thinner and older, but the thought pulled at him. It happened every time he started running, visions of a home he'd never stayed at long enough to claim, faint echoes of a life he hadn't lived, bleeding through from a neighboring universe where his choices had been different. It wasn't where he'd run if things got hot. They'd be hotter still back in Massachusetts. But the tug was there. God damn it. Some bodies were better buried, and those were usually the ones least likely to stay in the casket. The comm unit vibrated on his lapel. He hooked the phone behind his ear and squeezed the unit. Oh, what do you have for me, Alphonse? Message coming through for you. Relate it to Fugitive, will you? Will do. He toggled the connection closed and looked across the console. Communications would be blinking, of course during a pre-flight warm-up, so would everything else. It would be near at hand to the pilot's seat, ambidextrous control layout, so there would be redundancies on each side, which meant there would be synchronized blinks... there. Joss threw the switch and was greeted by a text caption. It read, Meeting prep. And a counter, counting down from ten. When the clock hit zero, the screen blinked. To a newscast. This is TGN. From a certain angle, it looked like a squid, moving through space like a pulsating water jet, its camera array jutting out as it turned this way and that, maneuvering on chemical jets around the sensor masts of the massive ships. There were dozens of them, occasionally catching each other in their survey dance, particularly as one or another flashed and burned out, sliced in two by high-powered lasers or struck by thermal fire. The lenses slid silently along a hull that seemed never to end, the cameras switching as unit after unit blinked out until the footage paused in mid-tumble on the hull registry. Through the motion blur, the name Rubaiyat was just discernible. Just to repeat, the news anchor read over the footage as a series of recursive enhancement passes showed the registry ever clearer with each successive overlay. We can now confirm that at least seven heavy cruisers passed through one of our camera clouds this afternoon. Their design is new, not one that the experts at the station have seen before, but their names clearly mark them as Persian. All of our camera units were destroyed, and we don't know where these cruisers came from or where they're going. The camera cut back to Trent Alcock. His warm smile, always fake but comforting nonetheless, was gone. What was left was grim disbelief, like someone who had suddenly learned that the apocalypse had decided to pop around for afternoon tea. Brittany had never seen a well-tanned Korean man look ashen before. The chorus, the orchestra members, and the supporting cast were gathered around her like children huddling in a breadline, waiting for the news that the food had run out. One thing now is certain. The Persian Empire has a military presence in the inner solar system. Ready or not, here they are. Curtain was in half an hour, and the green room was crowded. Normally, Brittany had the place to herself at this point before the show, but the news was going everywhere today. 
if photons were morphine, everyone would be on an IV drip. Brittany tried to concentrate on her warm-up stretches and exercises, shutting out the excited murmurs as best she could as she alternated her handstands, stretches, and shoulder rolls with gradually more daring acrobatic moves. She didn't have a head for politics, but anything Terran turned her stomach on principle. Groundhogs eating up the sky was bad enough. Crud-eaters were the worst of the groundhogs still standing. Crud-eaters and ships bristling weapons... She couldn't stop looking as the footage played over and over. Ophelia was rubbing her neck vigorously to keep her warm, but all eyes in the room were fixed on the screen, waiting for the big story. And now, to Karis Shandley, live on Space Station Sidon. Thanks, Trent. Space Station Sidon today was only one of the sites rocked by sudden explosions between midnight and 0300 GMT. Fifteen other sites around the solar system, including five in Luna City, were blasted simultaneously in what is being called the single largest guerrilla attack in the history of space travel. More extensive than the kidnappings reported in the wake of the attack on Marion Shelley earlier this year, these new bombings exhibit a level of coordination not seen before, and no one has claimed responsibility. The screen muted. Brittany looked up to see Zylar pocketing the remote control at the left edge of the group. That's enough of that! His tight, affected lilt tried to seem casual and aristocratic, perhaps to command respect. The effort made him sound a bit like a disgruntled ferret. The crowd groaned in protest. Undaunted, Zyler swept up the practice stage below the monitor in his cape, boots, archaic cane, and gaudy vest suit. Brittany stifled a laugh. Not that she was a great judge of male beauty, but the attempt to ape Cassie's green lady persona was just obvious enough to be ridiculous. He clapped his hands smartly. Listen up! Zyla, shut it down! Brittany was close enough that he would hear her over the yelling. This is performer space. All of you just shut up! His pinched voice pierced straight through the din. Now listen. It's a vacuum out there. Everyone running around scared of their shadows. Brittany leaned back and whispered into Ophelia's ear. Grab my chair. Ophelia nodded and stood up while Brittany turned back to the problem at front. The bombing's got everyone scared out there, and they want to escape. Ophelia returned with the chair and helped Brittany up into it. We had a rough opener last week, but they're packing in now. They what want... they want is our business. Brittany turned up the sweetest, most cloying flavor of her native Wellington accent as she floated towards him. Not looking for a lizard king in a sequined coat, are they? Be a good boy and shove off to the audience where you can pretend it's your house. Sit down! This is my... This is the green lady's house. And not yours. He gripped his cane like a scepter and waved it in her face. Brittany, sit down! Brittany stopped for a moment, taken aback by his severity. He wasn't usually so easily rattled. Cassie wouldn't have kept him on the payroll, old friend or no, if he was. Zylar took the chance to turn back to the cast. Now, like I was saying, it's a full house out there tonight. We gotta make them forget the day and love the- Zylar. Her approach was gentler this time. A lot of people here lost friends in the bombings today, didn't they? We're a family back here. We'll take care of it in our own way. You're not a part of it. Zyler looked at her, somehow managing to look down even though she was floating at eye level with him. And who are you, a slut who hoard her way to the top of the grab well? You are an employee here. He leaned in close and held his fingers up to her. I could replace you like that. He snapped right near her face. 
girls like you come, and when the grosses go down, they go. Brittany reached down into her chair and rested her hand on the handle of the cosh she kept hidden in a discreet compartment. The rest of the cast hung back, afraid to cross Xylar for fear of their jobs. Maybe so. She gritted her teeth and nearly hissed at him. But a sad little wanker like you won't do the replacing. So get your sorry ass out of my green room. Xylar leaned in close, nose to nose, in a move he must have learned from trying to intimidate dock rats and loan sharks. Being Cassie's taught doesn't make you mistress of this theater. <coughs> Brittany slapped him with her left hand, hard, before the words were all the way out of his mouth. Being a junior lieutenant doesn't keep you from being a useless fop, does it? Xylar rounded on her, raising his cane to strike her. She didn't wait to see if it was just another threat. She drew the caution, swung it at his arm, lurching her chair forward at the same time, the heavy weight at the end cracking audibly against his wrist. His cane clattered to the ground. His rage reverberated off the walls in the green room. Brittany looked at the pair of male dancers next to Ophelia and nodded towards Xylar. They may not have the clout to stand up to him, but Brittany did. Hiding behind her, they were free to do what they'd been itching to do since he intruded on their sacred space. They grabbed him by the arms and shuffled him out with as little dignity as they figured they could afford him. See that he gets to the storefront. A commercial medic next door had a cozy relationship with the theater. And tell the stage manager we'll be delaying the show by 15 minutes. Brittany turned back to the cast. Well, loves, it's looking like we got a full house tonight. We have a few minutes left if anyone wants to talk. The cast was silent. A couple of the chorus passed tissues between the members who had lost family in the attacks or were still waiting to hear. It seemed like there was nothing appropriate to say or see. It had all played over and over every ten minutes since the explosions. They were up in the Ag Dome in the main gallery, just the right place to cause the most damage. Three charges set off in sequence. One took out a center joint in the top of the dome, How the saboteurs got up there without being seen, nobody guessed. The next two took out the emergency air door motors at the top two levels of the gallery. The Loxcore mint teams were still counting the bodies. Brittany wasn't the cast mother, and she didn't want the job. But after her confrontation with Xylar, she was the one everyone was looking at and listening to. Everyone felt vulnerable, and there was a show to put on. She had to say something, and it had to end with everyone ready to go on stage. She pushed her chair forward until she could look back at the endlessly repeating muted footage on screen. She closed her eyes and plumbed the depths of her crown education and started mashing things together. Turn now with me in the widening gyre, and heed not the falconer. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. She held her hand out, still brandishing the kosh, and pointed it west and down in the direction of the city center and the board of directors' offices. The best lack all conviction. She raised her hand and pointed the weapon straight up to where they all knew the earth was sitting in the night sky. While the worst are full of passionate intensity. These sods are a piece of work up there, but they won't get us down, and we'll make them pay for every one of ours they took. But not tonight. Tonight, we are the paragon of animals. There are a lot of people out there, and we're their comfort. Let's go make them happy.
the liquid in the vial, once as transparent as glass, began to cloud. An emulsion of simple sugars and lipids, the most basic kind of food any carbon-based life form could consume. It had stayed clear until Doug's thumb depressed the blister on the viral's cap. The thin membrane tore, raining 30 microscopic beings down onto the surface of the liquid, where they would have stayed and rotted if Doug hadn't pressed the second button. When he did, a piezoelectric element fired a burst of electricity across the surface of the fluid, jump-starting the organisms. The electrical charge gave the nanobots just enough momentum to begin metabolizing. As they ate, they replicated. They synthesized the sugars and lipids into more of themselves, excreting the water back into the solution. It was the first stage of their two-stage lifespan. The process took an hour, during which time Doug poured over his notes. He was just old enough to remember the brouhaha over what everyone at the time had called the singularity. It was supposed to be a tipping point in technological advance where humans could transcend themselves by augmenting their wetware with implants, by extending their lifespans with rejuvenation, replacing their organs with lab-grown spare parts, and uploading their consciousness into computers for virtual immortality. Reality didn't quite work out that way. Like everything else, humanity embraced the Great Singularity Technologies piecemeal. Doug never liked the idea of neural implants. Screw with a man's brain and you risk rewriting the man. Unfortunately, the human capacity for memory was not unlimited. Eventually, in a long life, the brain started shuffling out old facts to make way for new ones, and Doug had more than his fair share of years and facts to cope with. Without the implants, the only extended memory left to him was his PPD. A pang, light but insistent, ran through his gut. Space travel at a full G was hard on his bones, now well adjusted to lunar gravity. He'd forgotten how many more calories and nutrients it took to maintain the body under acceleration. He hadn't been on the business end of a gravity push like that for almost ten years. The information on Scott Walter's computer core contained more than enough to keep him busy. The man was supposed to be a dock worker not important by any stretch of the imagination. He loaded and unloaded ships for customs inspections and agricultural quarantine. He went to church on Sunday for the ritual massage and rites. His social calendar was chock full of meetings, bondings, and hospital visits. But neither Mr. Walter's social calendar, his investments, nor his salaries seemed to account for the large infusions of credit that regularly showed up in his accounts, nor for the industrial diamonds he used as cash for large purposes and it didn't account for the cache of encryption keys Doug's hacker Bella had found embedded in Walter's photo files. Up until he'd hired the Curier, they hadn't told him anything. A key without a lock was just an ornament. Just before they'd embarked, he received what he assumed would be his last communique from Bill Shelley. Doug, lunar compliance on the anti-terrorism directive causing waves here. Until current crisis passes, I cannot continue to communicate lest I be compromised. Your efforts appreciated. A little bird told me that there's an exchange server at demeter.iman.r.net. Seeing a lot of activity around the times of the attacks. Some of the people in your circle might have better luck than the boys at Langley. If you find anything to help me catch Marion's attackers, or to take down the terrorist network, please forward it here. Perhaps the dream doesn't have to die here. Bill. One of the keys in the pile 
fit the lock. As he settled down in his bunk with his PPD to wait for the nanobots to finish priming, he discovered a note from Bella. Key 13 authenticates on specified server. Doug closed his eyes and counted to ten. Bill had been ahead of this thing every step of the way, giving him the heads up on policy changes, letting him in on info about the attacks. The senator was quite adept at setting up a trail of breadcrumbs, of prodding people this way and that, to make sure he got what he wanted. It was what made him an effective politician. And this server lead, another breadcrumb, was Shelley leading him up the garden path? And if he was, what was the endgame? The first pawn on the board was Briggs. The former national security advisor had a hard-on for executive power, and he'd done all he could to make sure he had enough dirt on the most powerful members of Congress to get their support on any important directives. He hadn't been subtle about it, and his reputation as a bloody-toothed bulldog didn't stay secret for long. A man like that didn't walk away from power. When he went missing, it was a good bet that Shelley knew something about it, even if he wasn't behind it. Briggs himself was always loyal to the U.S., and getting his cooperation was a major coup. Perhaps too major. Too easy. It didn't take long with Briggs running his shop on Nineveh to come up with access codes for the Persian servers where no one else could. Just in time to catch chatter about the new fleet. Doug had always trusted Shelley because he trusted the man's loyalties. He'd been an idealistic law clerk in Doug's court long before he ran for office, and they'd always shared the dream of breaking the human race of its dependence on its cradle. He didn't know if he could trust Briggs. And now Shelley was leading him... into what? The old Bill Shelley would never change his vote on lunar policy, no matter what happened to Marion. The old Bill Shelley would also welcome the incidental death of Reuben Briggs. On the other hand, the Briggs Doug knew by reputation would never have turned coat and sold out the U.S. in the ways this one had. He'd have forwarded the Persian defense codes to Langley, not to a rogue network of revolutionaries run, as far as he knew, by an underworld boss hostile to U.S. interests on Luna. His stomach nodded. He needed food soon. Doug pushed the hunger away again as he thumbed through the server logs attached to Bella's message. It wasn't just a breadcrumb. Someone was spreading out a banquet for the Resistance Network. Directives for everything. Dates, times, and personal allocations for each of the terrorist attacks and for several coming up. Scott Walters was one of the terrorists, and he sold Briggs the codes. Was Briggs running a black op to undermine lunar independence? And if he was, did Shelley know about it? Doug tossed the PPD onto the foot of his bunk and slid down to the floor. He did a couple dozen jumping jacks to get the blood flowing back to his brain. Somehow, before he reached Nineveh, he had to devise a Solomonic strategy for untangling things. He couldn't afford to sacrifice a resource like Briggs unless he knew for sure he was playing both sides. The hour was over. The liquid in the vial shone like graphite in his stateroom's panel lighting. Doug lifted the vial, shook it vigorously to make sure the nanobots were properly suspended in the solution. He retrieved a pressure injector from his travel case and then held his breath as he loaded the vial into its magazine. A couple solid thumps at his jugular, and the implanted injection port rose to the surface like a stubborn pimple. The hard nub fit like a nipple into the maw of the pressure gun. He pressed the trigger, flooding his bloodstream with five or six million nanobots. 
they would travel through his body for the next 36 hours, lengthening the ever-shortening telomeres at the ends of his chromosomes, cleaning up cellular damage, and staving off age-related diseases. It was his concession to the singularity. He liked living in meat space. He wanted it to last as long as it could. Long enough to see humanity finally push out into the stars. He stowed the injector in his bag and set off in search of breakfast. You've been listening to episode 19 of Antithesis, book 1, Predestination, and other games of chance. Written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer. Original music by Danny Shade, used with permission. This episode starred Lynx Crow as Trent Alcock, Elizabeth Rossi as Karis Shandley, Michael LaMangelo as Alphonse and Xylar, Philippa Ballantyne as Brittany Hydra, and Kitty Nakian as The Computer. Some sounds courtesy the Free Sound Project, www.freesound.org. Other sounds copyright 2008 and 2009, Kitty Nakian and Artistic Whispers Productions. This audiobook was recorded, edited, and mixed at Artistic Whispers Productions in Castro Valley, California. The book is copyright 1997 and 2008, J. Daniel Sawyer, and the recording is copyright 2009, Artistic Whispers Productions. This recording is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license, and all other rights are reserved to the author. Hey guys, no significant after show this week as I'm way behind. It looks like I'm going to be in Chicago the last week of March. I'll have dates for you guys next week if any of you wants to get together for dinner or a pub crawl while I'm there. Still planning on dropping this week's episode Thursday or Friday. In the meantime, remember that you can leave questions, comments, criticisms, attaboys, and death threats at dan at jdsawyer.net or on the blog at antithesis.jdsawyer.net. You can call and leave a voicemail at area code 206-350-5739. And remember to spread the word. If you like what you're hearing, tell your friends, post a link, post an iTunes review, give away MP3s, and pelt your enemies with CD copies of the first few episodes to get people hooked. What happens in the final eight episodes? How will everything pan out? How old is Doug, after all? And what does that mean for the plans he's laying? And... As we come down to the very end of the first book, who will survive the crucible that Doug is engineering? Find out this week, and until next time, remember, it isn't whether you win or lose, it's how you rig the game.